Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we have an outstanding guest. We are joined by Nima Gamsari, CEO and co-founder of Blend, a company transforming the 40 trillion consumer lending industry by delivering speed and efficiency to mortgage lenders to navigate a complex industry. Blend is also a newly minted unicorn that has raised almost $400 million in equity from some of the top VCs in the industry, including Canopy Ventures, Temasek, General Atlantic, 8VC, Greylock, Peter Thiel, and many, many more. Prior to Blend, Nima was an early employee at Palantir Technologies, where he co-founded its commercial groups focused on major data challenges for the financial sector. Nima is also a former professional poker player and talked to us about some of the parallels between entrepreneurship and the game of poker. And now join me in an awesome conversation with Nima Gamsari. Well, Nima, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Extremely excited to have you here. Can we start by hearing a bit about yourself and, and your background? Hey, sure. Yeah, I'm Nima. I'm one of the founders of Blend, which is a fintech company focused on software as a service for the broader consumer banking industry, mainly focused on mortgage initially, and now we've expanded to other product lines. Um, we've been around for about eight years. Before that, I was a Palantir, and before that, I went and I was a computer science major in college. Great, great. So tell us a little bit about your background, specifically as it relates to poker. You had a great run in poker, and which I guess some of the lessons of poker have translated into entrepreneurship. But uh, I think our, our audience would love to hear about your poker background. Sure, yeah. So I, when I started at Stanford in 2004, Stanford is super generous with tuition reimbursement for families with low to moderate income. And so like if your family makes a combined $100,000 or less, at the time, this was the case at least, they would cover all your tuition or give you financial aid for all your tuition. But that didn't cover things like room and board. And so I was fortunate to be in, I shouldn't say fortunate, like, you know, we were in the situation where my family was in that bracket, but we were able to get, so we were able to get the room, um, the, the tuition, but the room and board I had to figure out on my own. And I just, when I graduated high school, I was working at Starbucks when I graduated. And so I was interviewing at a Starbucks near Stanford's campus to work there part-time during school so I could pay the bills. And one of my doormates was like, Nima, what are you doing? And the world tiers of poker had just become a big thing. He's like, Nima, you can play online. And as long as you play a few thousand hands a month, which is like 10, 20, 30 hours, they'll pay you a thousand dollars just to play. Like they want to get players filling the table. So they'll pay you money. If you play enough hands, you don't lose money. Minus all, including all their vigs and stuff like that. So we started, I just started, got a $20 free entry into a, one of the poker sites called Party Poker. And I, of course, like within five days lost that. And I was like, well, crap, like the 20 bucks is gone. I got to go get the Starbucks job now. And so I went back and I met with the manager there. And then just before I was starting, Monday before I was starting at Starbucks, I was entered into a free roll tournament, which for those who don't know what that is, it's a free tournament that they offered to all the players who had just signed up that week on this poker site and they had like a thousand dollar payout or something or $2,000 payout. And I somehow just lucked my way into third place, got 300 bucks. And I was like, wow, like this is a lot. Like I need to really protect this. And I think I'd build this up. So I started, so long story short, I started reading books. I started practicing. I started participating in online forums, reviewing my sessions, watching my games, learning about how to play poker. Cause I'd never really played before. 
And within six months, I had made hundreds of thousands of dollars and was one of the was, was one of the rising stars in the poker world. And of course, that means a lot of people in the poker world hate you. And then over the course of the next seven or eight years, up until 2011, when online poker was shut down in the US, I was playing the super high stakes limit hold'em games online, mostly heads up, which is one-on-one poker. But that helped pay for college, but also things beyond that. Like there were, I had never seen that kind of money before in my life and taught me a lot of things about not, not just how to work in business, but also just my approach to money is different than most people's because of that experience as well. That's fascinating. So you mentioned you were playing online. How about in person? Did you ever play in person games? You know, the biggest games in the US were all online. Like in Full Tilt Poker, which was another one of the poker sites, you could play up later on in 2009, 2010, you'd play up to $2,000, $4,000 blinds, which means like, think about it as like $100,000, $200,000 buy-in. But you couldn't play that game in, in a casino, right? And so like the tournaments, and the tournaments were too slow for me. That wasn't my game. Um, I like to play multiple tables online with, with multiple opponents. And so I, I almost exclusively played online. Um, not to mention that when I first started playing poker, most of the casinos were 21 plus. And so I couldn't go in person because they serve alcohol, but I could go online and play. So for a variety of reasons, online was the best place for me to play. And also let me like really crank and learn and record my sessions and keep studying and how to get better and better. And like taught me a valuable lesson, just like constantly needing to improve because everybody's always come after me. Everybody's always trying to get better so they can be better than me. So after poker, you spent some time at Palantir, right? Tell us a little bit about your role at Palantir and why did you decide to leave? I started at Palantir in 2008, right before the financial crisis. And my role was business development engineer, which I mean, it's kind of a made up name for a role, but essentially what I was doing is I was like, it was an early stage team, a small team focused on financial services that I was working on. And we were working with a bunch of banks before the crisis. And as soon as the crisis hit, all the banks were like, Hey, can you help us with the mortgage crisis that we're going through? And so we were kind of thrust into that in 2009, 2010, 2011 and figure out like, what can we do to help people consumer, the millions of consumers who are, who are struggling right now, not get foreclosed on, not lose their home. And so we were working with them very closely. And the thing that it taught me was just how much of this industry, the $10 trillion industry, it powers so much wealth creation. Like buying a home is the thing that made my parents able to eventually retire early because they had the savings from their home that they had built over the years and the equity in the home even though it was, you know, it's a $250,000 home, they bought it for $100,000. And that was enough to really create material long-term savings for them. But at the same time, the industry was entirely run on paper. And in some cases still is in some areas. And so it was like, well, I didn't understand why it was. And so that's ultimately what inspired us to go and start blend and say, hey, we can build a modern platform, a software as a service platform that will really serve as the utility infrastructure for this industry. Great. So we are talking actually a day after the announcement that blend closed your series F fresh $75 million coming into company with an estimated valuation of 1.7. At least that's what I read on the papers. Obviously, huge success to this day, but take us to the very beginning, right? I mean, we would love to hear about your story of how did you approach actually launching company, building, you know, talking to the initial investors. I think it's a wonderful story. We'd love to hear it. Sure, yeah. Actually, when we started the company, our team at Palantir had done really great things together at Palantir. And like, we had really helped the industry in certain areas. And, and it was one of those things where like, because of that reputation of our team's like mindset, we had grit, we were willing to run through walls. We were willing to just do whatever it takes to make this thing successful at Palantir. 
you know, the early fundraising, we had one of the founders of Palantir was one of the key investors and a few others in that network were key investors. So we were able to raise the early funding because it was a small team that had, had worked together before and was going after a really big industry. We were able to raise the early funding. I would say it was not, I want to say easy, but it was, I think people were betting on us more than they were betting on where we were specifically doing, which I understand and I recognize as a luxury and not everyone has that luxury because sometimes it's their first time founders or their first time, you know, working in industry, maybe founders right out of college or right after an MBA program. The hard part for us was, and everybody's journey is different, but the hard part for us was like, we knew we were going after a massive industry. The problem is when we got started, the industry was so big. It was almost too big. And like, we didn't know where to start because there was so much stuff that needed to be worked on. And there's also a desire from some of the founders to work on things that could not just span this industry, but all the industries. Cause like industry specific tech was not in vogue at the time. And so it was like, well, can this thing be big enough if it's just focused on one industry? And so there was like, we kind of, I would say we thrashed for about a year, year and a half before we really started to get good direction. And I'd say the things that I learned in that time were like, just because it's a really big industry and just because there are bigger solutions out there that you can build over time, it really doesn't mean that you have to start with that. Like it's easy to add that stuff later. What's really hard is executing on even one part of one part of one problem and like fixing some atomic unit to be 10 times better than the alternative. Like that's so hard as it is that I wish we had, I mean, I'm glad we actually iterated to get that one atomic unit that was really valuable, which is kind of the original blend product. But if we had found that sooner, I think we were too in the clouds to have just focused on that. And that was a mistake on our part. And that was something we learned early on. It's just like, figure out the big thing that you're gonna make 10 times better. Focus on just that. Don't worry about five years down the road. Like, honestly, like the, the, the five years down the road, it matters from a fundraising standpoint. It matters from like selling the vision to the team standpoint, but it doesn't actually matter in any other respects. Like all that matters is like you executing and like the things that can create value in the world today. And that was kind of the early journey. And then I think once we decided to focus on not just mortgage, but this specific problem in mortgage, which was like the origination application using data instead of documents, once we decided to focus on that, we were just like had so many tailwinds behind us. And then Quicken launched Rocket Mortgage, which actually just went public a few weeks ago. And all that stuff just really worked in our favor too. So timing matters as well. And we were very fortunate that that happened in our favor at the same time. So you mentioned part of the team comes from Palantir. How about the rest of the initial team? How did you recruit? How did you assemble your team? Well, I think, you know, it's hard to know you're going to work well with someone unless you've worked well with them in the past. And I would say being on the same page at an early stage company is maybe one of the most important things. And so we ended up finding a couple people early, early on from our network and said, like, basically our friends. And we're like, let's just work together on this. Like the early two or three people were the three first hires were people that we just were either friends or very close friends of friends. And that worked out really well. Actually, I would say like the harder thing was we had four founders, which anything that has four decision makers means it has basically no decision makers. And so that was probably one of the early lessons was like, figure out who the decision maker is for each area and have one ultimate decision maker and one accountable person. Because if we don't have that, then things were moving too slow. But yeah, we found the early team through our network. And then of course, at some point you've got to expand beyond your network, but that was later on for us once we had more product market fit. Got it. So part of Blend's mission is to deliver better lending, right? I would love to hear about some of your achievements to improve the lending experience and Maybe if you could tell us about whether the rest of the industry has started to follow and also moved in the right direction. Yeah, sure. So I think the key insight for Blend, which I thought was just related to mortgage, but was in actually, in fact, probably relevant to the, most of banking, 
was that there was this rising tide of consumers accessing their financial data and like this digitization of the consumer's financial profile, if you will. So like how much money you make, how much money you have, what your credit history looks like, what your cash flows are, all that kind of stuff was becoming digital. And the historical way of doing a mortgage, for example, was like you'd provide your bank statements, your pay stubs, your W-2s, and you'd provide those via documents. And then somebody would read those documents a few days later, and then they would come up with some items that they wanted to check with you. And they'd go back to you a few days later via manual review. And then you'd go back to them with more documents. And then I think the real problem with that is like, it's absolutely possible to do things that way. There's not like a problem with that, but if there's new, all of a sudden there's all this data available. If I know your income, the gal, like, why can't I just tell you what you're approved for? If I know all the data, I shouldn't need humans reading the documents. And so it seems obvious, right? It's like, oh yeah, of course the data exists. Like, why aren't we using it? Well, the systems were built before the data existed. And so they couldn't have been built with a world that data was going to exist. And um, anyways, I mean, that was the, the core innovation. And like, I mean, we, we rolled that out in the very first versions in 2014, when we first rolled out our product. And we've expanded over time to understand all aspects of the consumer's profile and also to evaluate the data in real time. And we've done that over the past six or seven years. We now do you know, three and a half billion a day in mortgages and other consumer products as well. We're doing a ton of those as well now as we've grown into other asset classes. But it did turn out that it turns out not just mortgage, but many of the other asset classes, car loans, personal loans, it's just people, re- home equity loans, it's just people reading those documents. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so that was kind of the core innovation. And you know, we're again, we're the software as a service layer where the consumer is getting a white-labeled experience. The internal team members, the bank are using our system to review kind of our findings that they can then augment if they want with human intelligence. But yeah, it's been a pretty cool ride. We have 250 banks on our platform now, banks, credit unions, mortgage companies, and serving just millions and millions of consumers, which is thrilling for me. That's amazing. And have you seen the rest of the industry layers, particularly the traditional ones, move in the same direction? We work with the whole spectrum. We work with fintechs that want to use our software. We work with old school, some of the biggest banks in the country use our software. We work with real estate companies who want to you know, be able to offer mortgages. We work with pretty much home builders across the board. Everyone needs software to do this problem. And the options are build it yourself, use a legacy provider, or use one of the modern providers like us. And we're obviously, we invest the most in this area of anybody by a wide margin. And we have a great team in place to continue to innovate on this. So like people really believe that we can do it. And we spend all our time figuring out how can we deliver better and better as time goes on. We interview a lot of founders on the podcast. And a topic that keeps coming up is company culture, right? So first, we'd love to hear about your approach to recruiting top talent. And then once they join, what kind of company culture are they going to find at Blend? Well, I think it comes down to like picking a couple vectors that you really care about. I picked a couple vectors that I really cared about and just focused all my energy on those things. So one vector is like, obviously, like we want to have super smart people. Like we'll pay the top end of the market for top end people, top talent, and we'll continue to double down. As people are successful here, we want to keep making them more and more successful in the company by giving them more responsibility more accountability, more compensation, more leverage. Those are the kinds of things that, and I think that creates like a winning culture where like when you double down on winning, it turns out people want to win more. But then also I think there's other, there's probably almost more important vectors that trump that even, which is everyone's had experiences, but we've had experiences where like culturally some people are difficult to work with. And, you know, humility as a result has become a very strong core vector. We can't have high ego people at blend anymore because 
it just creates so much disruption. It doesn't matter how good you are. I don't know you personally, but if you came and you were like the smartest person, you knew everything, but nobody could work with you, like the reality of rolling out a product to 250 banks and credit unions and mortgage companies, it doesn't happen with one person. Yeah, it could be one person's initial core innovation, but then it needs to keep being able to grow from there. And not just the first thing is not the valuable thing. The valuable thing is what happens over 20 years. And so humility, one of the values that I spend a lot of time on is, but also confidence to go along with that. And I think sometimes people think that those things are at odds, but I know some very humble people who are extremely confident and use the confidence to power them through obstacles. Like the confidence creates the grit that we need to succeed. Cause again, like doing something across this industry is really hard, but we need the humility so that we know that we don't know everything and that we have to keep learning and keep getting better because there is no upside to this company. There's no like limited upside to any company. Actually, the company's upside is limited by what that company creates in the world, which there's so many things that need to be created. That there's no limit to the upside that companies can have. It's just limited by the people there. And so I would say like my, you know, my personal strategy was pick a couple of vectors that I really, really care about and then double down on those things and spend all my time. Like I still interview candidates across the board. Like I talk to candidates, almost all levels of the company as they come in, because it's just hard to know what people are like before you work with them. But there's like ways you can find out in the interview process, just by asking them simple questions about how they think about the world. And talking a little bit about the crisis that we're all experiencing these days, how has it impacted Bland? And more importantly, I guess, how has it impacted your clients? Well, as somebody who got into this industry because of the last mortgage crisis, and I remember saying at the time, like, if there's another crisis, we will be there and we will act fast. And so in some ways, like I've been like, I don't want to say in a negative way, like I've been waiting for this because I knew that if it happened, we could help. And like, yeah, there are millions of consumers who could benefit from lower rates if they refinanced as an example right now. And like when money is tight for people, every dollar counts and maybe offering personal loans for their, to be able to bridge a gap in their or offering them loan forbearance. So they don't have to pay their mortgage for a few months or giving them a loan modification. Like those are things that we, we have rallied around doing all those things, better refinancing, better loan forbearance, better loan modification. We did help with the small business loans with COVID. Like those are all things that not just our customers need to offer to the consumers. If they don't offer this to consumers in a cost-effective, time-effective way, like millions of people will be negatively affected. And so when the crisis hit, like I was just like, let's rally, you know? And I think, by the way, I've seen morale at our company, even though it's, I'd say it's definitely more work and it's harder to work during COVID, overall morale is just like people love helping people. And like being able to see the impact of what you're doing get rolled out to millions of consumers basically overnight is really cool. And so that's something that motivates me personally. I think impact-oriented people, it's another vector that I look for in the interview process. Like if our company is focused on making money versus the impact, I think that the money can follow from the impact, but the impact is the prime, has to always be the primary function of success because the money follows from that, not the other way around. So yeah, so I think people seeing the impact has been super positive and our customers have really appreciated us stepping up and have trusted us, which is even more comforting to me that they'll trust us in the future with more things that come up. But it's been great to be part of the solution to some of these things. No, absolutely. And what have been some of your challenges navigating this crisis? Well, we're all working from home, which is a unique thing. So just figuring that out. I mean, it wasn't like it was hard, but it was like we had to figure it out. We certainly don't know exactly what's coming around the corner. And like, so that means people who like predictability and like to be able to forecast what's going to happen just out the window. And so a lot of the people who like that kind of stuff are struggling. And, you know, I'm doing the best I can to make sure that we don't veer off our long-term plans, because even though we have to do short-term things to help our customers, we still have a long-term vision for the industry. And so like, how do I balance that with all the things that we'd be help- we could be helping with? 
And then for me as a leader, it's like one of my weaknesses is, you know, I'm not very good at communicating to the company things that are going on in my head or across the company so that like somebody over here knows what's going on over here and, and knowing how that fits into the bigger picture. Like those are, those are pretty important things to know, which I think a lot of times they got it because they'd see a lot of FaceTime with me and others. And when the FaceTime is gone with not just with me, but with all the teams are, are remote, how do we make sure that we make my weakness of communication, not hold back the company is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And so we've been doing more frequent company, all hands. We've been doing more frequent written communications. We've been inviting everybody to quarterly reviews of all our business lines so that everyone knows exactly how things are going on, how things are going. And we've been publishing all our like, in detail KPIs, so everyone can just understand here's all the things we're doing, here's how we're doing, and here's where we're going. And that's it's hard. And it's we're still not very good at it, but we're getting better at it because we have to. So you mentioned you're not letting this crisis affect your long-term plans. Uh, but how do you think the future of the workplace, particularly blend, will look like post-COVID? Well, it's hard to say. Again, like not a lot of easy, not easy to predict when post-COVID will even be. When COVID first hit in March, you know, I'm so naive. I was like, oh yeah, we'll be in the office by July. Maybe I was right. Maybe it'll be next July though. Like it was off by a year. I think it will really depend. I mean, San Francisco has taken a hit as a city. Um, a lot of people are leaving. Rents are going down a lot. I expect commercial rents will go down even more as companies become more decentralized. On the flip side, I do really value the in-person contact and collaboration. And so that there's a question of like, how do we manage the fact that we're not in person right now? Do we want to go back to being in person? My personal preference is yes, but I need to make the call in terms of like what's best for the company at some point. And we haven't yet decided that. Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, Nima, let's talk a little bit about your fundraising journey, right? Um, as, as I was mentioning, you just closed your Series F. You've had multiple iterations of rounds and you've also brought in some great industry names. Can you talk about the relationship with your VCs and then how has that evolved over time? You know, VCs are a really interesting bunch because even though their interests are aligned with ours in terms of like they own a big chunk of the company, they don't have all the context that I have about what's going on in the industry that we're solving for and what we're building a blend. And I don't have all the context that they have around what pitfalls other companies fall into. And so it becomes like a little bit of a tug of war with like, I'll give you an example. About three years ago, our mortgage product was taking off, was starting to do really well. You know, we tripled an ARR that year, recurring revenue. And one of our VCs was like, hey, like this is the time. And once you start to scale, this is time to like really tighten up on R&D spend and fix your sales and marketing spend so you understand how every dollar you spend turns into how many dollars of revenue. And like, just focus on like really tightening up your bottom line, like cut spend on certain areas. So you make sure like you eventually, cause you'll be throwing off cash at some point, which in some ways is like hundred percent right when they say that. On the other hand, I didn't have all the context that they did, which was like, there are a lot of companies that didn't tighten up their spend. And then they like, didn't, they stopped growing and then they just couldn't raise money. And like a lot of really bad things happen. Like there's a whole chain of events where like, if growth stops and that means your valuation goes dramatically down, compared to what it would be as a multiple of revenue that otherwise, then you raise money to down round and like the CEO's out. And they're like trying to protect me from all the stuff that they're seeing that I was not aware of. And what I was seeing was like, I was just starting to realize that the entire ecosystem around banking was mostly paper. And I'm like, man, like we got to go after all that. And like, we have to make sure we solve that and fix that for our customers and for consumers, because if we don't do it, maybe nobody else will do it. 
And I was like, well, I want to spend more on R and D and I want to spend more on like, you know, our customers and make sure we overspend on our customers. Cause the lifetime value is much higher if they do multiple product lines with us. And so that was like, that's an example of like some of the tug of war where like, ultimately we were very fortunate to have the company structured in a way that those decisions were made by the company and not by the VCs. I think if they were made by the VCs, then it would have been a much tougher road for us because we'd be really strapped. And I think some of our competitors are feeling this, to be honest, we're like, you know, they underinvested in product development and like building products. And like the products are the things that are creating value for our customers. And if we stop having that asset appreciate for them and somebody else is continuing to invest in their product, then they're eventually going to move to a different product. And let alone doing other products with us, which we want them to do, they'll eventually move to a different product. And so for me, it was like, I need to make sure this keeps the value of this that we're creating continues to appreciate so that they, A, want to continue to use our product forever, but B, so they want to do more and more with us over time because there are so many problems. Like I said early on, like I realized how many problems there were. Now we're just eight years in getting to the point where we're going to go and tackle all those problems. But that means that we have to make them successful first and foremost to get there. And so I think there's a lot of like tug of war between VCs. You know, our fundraising journey has been a good one. We're like, we have gotten some really great names. The most recent round was some of the most validating people in fintech, some the Encino founders and the head of the OCC invested in Blend. In this round, was a company called Canopy Ventures. Before that, it was General Atlantic and Tomasic, which are two really great growth stage and late stage funds. And then before that, it was Greylock. And before that, you know, it's like we just had good names to power us through. And I'm very grateful for their participation throughout. And like, I'm glad that we can make them proud by keep growing the way that we are. Staying on a, on a similar topic, which is entrepreneurial advice, you obviously have had a great run so far. And then we do have quite a few listeners who are either entrepreneurs who are getting started or also aspiring founders. Can you share some of your lessons and then reflections as an entrepreneur? I've mentioned some of them, but I would say one is like, you know, early on, get some people you really like working with. And that's what I did. I'll just tell it from my perspective versus giving advice. I'm really glad I got people that I enjoyed working with. One thing I wish I had done differently was wish we had done, had clear roles and responsibilities early on and clear ownership and having one person ultimately accountable. Otherwise it would have slowed us down too much. Another piece of advice, I guess, or just learning I had was there were so many different things that we could do. And I'm glad we eventually found one and focused on one. I wish we could have found that faster and sooner. Now it's hard to say if we would have found it sooner or faster, had we done some other path, but like if I had found something sooner, that was 10x better than the alternative and something that people really wanted to buy. At the time, I probably wouldn't have because I think because of my head was like almost like too big. I was like in the clouds. And I think like bringing a little more humility and saying, it's okay if we start here because we have so much opportunity in the future to, to keep adding more value. And that was another, another key learning for me. I think one thing that I did and I think is the right move is like, you know, definitely over-invest in the product and specifically for the reason of making your customers so successful. Um, whether those customers are consumers or your customers are banks or their insurance companies or healthcare companies or car companies, it actually doesn't matter. Just focus on the customers, make sure our product is creating value for them and figure out other areas to keep growing that value for them, appreciating that value for them because those customers, they probably have many more problems that you don't know about or I didn't know about at the time that when the time came for them to start to work on those problems, they first came to us. And that was like so valuable for them to trust us to come to us with those things. And so like, I always like to overinvest in our customers always. And our product is a way of overinvesting in our customers. And so that's another lesson. 
And then I do also believe, and so you mentioned culture earlier, that over-investing in culture and like the types of people, every mistake, every regret I've had at Blend has been a people-related regret, not a product or sales-related regret. I mean, like, yeah, we've lost deals and we've had product mishaps and we've made things wrong, but I don't regret those things. I regret where I knew better and I didn't listen to my gut or whatever. I actually spend a lot of time with our head of HR slash people operations, just laying out like the blend way. Here's the types of people that we aspire to be working with. And here's the way that we work together. And here's how we think about like, here's how we as a company align around these things. And for people who don't work that way, that's okay. There's lots of other companies to work with and work for, but this is our way of doing things. And like, let's do things in that way so that we can all be on the same page. Cause this is a big company with now a lot of people, we have 520 people or something, and it's growing very fast. If we're not aligned on the basics, we won't be aligned on the outcomes. Sounds like you have really set a strong foundation. How about thinking uh, for the road ahead? How do you envision the road ahead for Blend? What I think, it, as I've learned more about the industry and in the ecosystem around the industry, not just the industry, but there's like a lot of things that have to happen to get a mortgage. So there's a real estate agent, there's a title agent, there's a home insurance agent, there's a appraiser, there's an inspector, there's a closing agent or notary, and then there's a moving person. Like there's all these people... And so not only do I realize that the banking tech has a lot of room to grow and a lot of opportunity that we are more than excited to help with, but also the entire ecosystem, I think, is going to change around it as a result of the industry being more digital. It's going to demand digital experiences for the ecosystem. And so we think we can help there with the software at least. And so what that means in practice is like, I expect us to have like 20 years from now, I expect Blend to be 100 businesses that are all interconnected you know, on this common platform and this common foundation, but are like, truly like, there's a lot of things that we have to do and they're so varied. And so when I think about that, the thing that I think about is like, how do I set up the company to be able to build a hundred businesses in five years, 20 years, I should say, let alone five years. And that's five new businesses a year over the next 20 years. We definitely do not have the structural capability to build five businesses a year today. And so what I think about now a lot is how do I further decentralize not just decision-making, but the infrastructure around recruiting and finance and, and technology and like all the aspects that, that if I wanted to spin up a new business in, in like, for example, let's say that one of the annoying parts of moving into a new home is like getting movers, doing a white glove service, doing cable and internet setup there, setting up utilities. There's a world where Blend offers a concierge for that to our customers and their customers so that they can be sure that the customer who's buying a new home can be taken care of. That's just an example. We're not necessarily doing that, but how do I give that team a million dollars of budget or $2 million of budget and just say, go run with this thing, go hire who you need to hire. And here's the KPIs that you've said to me that you're going to deliver on, like come back to me every month and just like, let's review that, make sure things are going well. And if they're not, we have to make changes, but we're not set up to do that today. In order for us to be successful and really disrupt this industry, we have to think about these things as like truly autonomous things that are very strategically aligned, but are and from a planning perspective are done truly independently and even from an execution perspective. And so that's something that I think a lot about right now. And then of course the values, by the way, the values that I mentioned would have to be the same across, not only would the strategy have to be the same, but the values and the culture that underlies that has to be the same because we can't have different beliefs about things like performance and compensation and org structure and ego and like all these things. We can't have different views on that as a company because eventually these things will have some interconnections. And if there's one team over here, with lots of ego and one team over here with no ego and they're trying to work together, it's going to be a disaster. Uh, and so we do want to be one entity that is able to work 
in a paralyzed way. And that's what I think about a lot right now. And I think we're, we're well set up to do that, but I have a lot of work to do ahead of me to get us to that point. And a lot of this stuff has historically been bottlenecked on me to be quite candid. And I need to find a way to almost like move the bottle as far down the organization as I can, if that makes sense. So that new people can come in and create brand new value for the world without even needing to talk to me, if that makes sense. Well, thank you, Nima. Before we go, we always love to ask our guests about some of your personal hobbies and how you spend some of your time outside of working hours. Well, COVID is like, because I'm in the house all the time, I spend a lot of my time, I guess, now with my friends that I live with, which is, which is really fun. And also it's given me a lot of time to focus on self-care, which both is like what I consume, what I eat and you know, the exercise that I do, I've done a lot more. I feel like I'm a lot healthier than I've ever been because of COVID, which is fantastic. Uh, and it's like, I wish I had focused on self-care 20 years ago, but I might as well start now. So that's been a really, really positive development for me. Yeah. I guess like, I really do love the work that I do. I mean, it really is. The impact is like inspiring to me every day, like seeing the number of people we're able to positively affect. Like that's the thing that ultimately drives me all this other stuff. It's like nice to have stuff on the side but I really do enjoy the impact that I have and that our company has. And I enjoy like even just hearing people talk about it at blend. It's pretty gratifying. So there's a lot of fun stuff to, that I can be done during lockdown. And it's just figuring out like, what are those things for me? I'm like, I like to bake now too. And like bake healthy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly a lot of people have found uh, new passions and have become chefs almost overnight. Well, Nima, really fascinating conversation and then congratulations on all your success and I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of more exciting things come out of Blend. And, you know, we're very grateful for you joining us and, and taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be on your show. And hopefully your viewers, I guess, get something out of it. But yeah, thanks for having me. I'm sure they will. And you're always welcome to stop by campus at some point in the future. Yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I will. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.